Well, good morning, everybody. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. Um, as most of you know, our family is heading back to Togo in a few short weeks um, to continue our ministry there. Um, but I wanted to take this opportunity just to say thank you guys so much for your support of us as a church, um, both financially, um, for your prayers. That has meant so much to us. That has been so encouraging. We've actually had a very restful and refreshing furlough, and a large part of that has just been fellowship with you and your ministry to us. And so we want to thank you for that and just, again, say we consider you partners in the ministry there and such a blessing to have this church there behind us. Um, this morning, I'm going to be preaching from Romans 5, 1 through 5, and I'm excited about this. Um, first of all, because it's a passage that talks just how great the love of God is for us. Um, but along with that, it's a passage that God has used to deeply impact me and challenge me during the past year. Um, to give a little bit of context to that, our last 12 to 18 months in Togo, um, especially the last five, were the most difficult in my life. And there were a variety of reasons for that. There was conflict going on. There was unmet expectations. There were disappointments. And in that time, I became deeply discouraged and even felt despairing to the point where I was feeling anxious. I was having trouble sleeping. I was lacking energy, even sometimes feeling like my brain was in a fog. I was struggling with some anger and bitterness during that time. Um, and that, all this made it hard to minister. And honestly, I know that that's not how God calls me or you to respond in those circumstances. Um, but it still was a struggle. And even though I kept going to God and asking him to help me in the midst of that, it still at times really felt overwhelming. Um, I was desperate for hope and for joy and for peace. And the reality is, is oftentimes that's what the Christian life looks like, um, it's not always boldness or confidence, it's struggle, it's wrestling. Um, but in the midst of that, um, God met me in a very deep and personal way um, and greatly encouraged me and showed me his grace. Um, and as I came back on furlough, I knew there was a time for some need for healing and growth. And because of that, God brought me to this passage. <laughs> passage I actually spent several months going back and forth over studying and reflecting on I'm a passage that talks a lot about those things that I needed, about hope and peace and love. And it was deeply encouraging. It was deeply refreshing. So what I'm sharing today from this passage is something that God has used deeply in my life. And so it's out of that that I want to share that with you. Um, because I know that the Christian life isn't always easy. There are struggles we face. Um, you may be even facing greater struggles than I face. Um, but we have a God who we can cling to, who helps us, who brings us through the storm, and that's what I want to share with you today. So let's go ahead and pray that God would open our hearts to his word. Lord, we thank you for the confidence of knowing that you walk with us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardships, and that you love us deeply. And so I just pray that this morning you would open our hearts to your words, that we could understand it. Um, understand just how deep your love for us is as your children, um, and that that would encourage us to go out and live faithfully for you. Amen. So I know the book of Romans is a book that you are not unfamiliar with. Um, you know the great doctrine that is held there. Um, one thing you may not know, it was actually the first missionary prayer letter 
See, I got to bring missions in this somehow. Um, but in Romans 15:24, Paul actually talks about how he's going to go to Spain, and in passing there, he hopes to stop and that they could send him on his way. So it's actually really interesting. He gives all this great doctrine, and then he says, hey, can you help me on this mission of carrying this gospel to others? Um, so if my prayer letters are long, this is why. It's Paul's fault. <laughs> um, but about this book, we know after giving his introduction, Paul starts with these words. In, ver- in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so then Paul goes on to walk through what it looks like to trust God. And he talks about truths like sin, like justification, forgiveness, sanctification, security in Christ. He talks about how this leads us to worship God and to obey him. And so it's in the middle of this whole discussion of the righteousness of God that comes by faith, that we come to this passage that you can turn to in Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 this morning. Let me read it. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. And so from this passage, we're going to look at two points, Um, two things we are called to. The first is to rest in God's peace. The second is to rejoice in a certain hope. So let's look at that first point, rest in God's peace, coming from the first two verses. You know, Paul starts with therefore, pointing back to what he has already talked to. And so to understand what it means to have peace with God, you have to understand what Paul has already said in this book. Um, He says, our peace is a result of our justification. Why did we need justification? And some of you may be asking, what does that big word mean? And we'll get to that. Um, But... Paul has started the book in Romans 1 by saying that all mankind is under the wrath of God. This is because we have suppressed his truth. We have not given him honor as he was due, and we gave ourselves over to sin. We violated his righteous commands and thus are under his judgment. And so rather than showing that we are just, that we are holy, that we are righteous, that we are good, we have shown ourselves to be those who love wickedness. And this is true of Every single human being on this earth, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's important to remember that our offense against God is not just legal, but it's also relational. And by that I mean, oftentimes in the Western mindset, when we think of sin, we think of guilt. The idea that there is an objective moral standard and I violated it. So we think, I murdered, or I stole something. I broke that law. And so this is true. Clearly, we are guilty of violating God's law. But we also have to remember that when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about a personal relationship in that we have sinned against our creator. We have exchanged God's glory for our own. We have failed to honor him. We have failed to give thanks to the one who created us and gave us good gifts. We did not see fit to acknowledge that God. 
And we have presumed upon the riches of his kindness and impatience, and we continue in our sin and we refuse to repent, and we fall short of his glory, which means we can't stand in his holy presence because we are marred by sin. Ultimately, we have declared war on God. We have shamed him. And so when the Bible says we are under his wrath, we are rightly under his wrath. His wrath is both at our violation of his law and how we have dishonored him. And one day, everyone will face his wrath eternally as a punishment in hell, unless God chooses to intervene. We would have no hope if he did not choose to intervene. Um, But praise God that he did choose to intervene. And so that's what we can say, that we who have trusted in him are now justified. To justified means to be declared righteous. And it's this idea that God looks on us as if we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear that we have this because of God's grace. It comes through the death and resurrection of Christ. We did nothing to earn it. Um, we could not be declared righteous by doing good. In Romans 3.19 it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Um, but it comes through Christ. You know, this is the gospel. Christ, who never sinned, came. He lived perfectly. He met all the requirements of God. And then he chose to bear our punishment and die in our place so that we could have his righteousness. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news, is it not? And it comes by faith. It comes by believing in the work of Jesus Christ. Um, in Romans 4, 6, Paul says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In Romans three twenty four and 25, he says, And we are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so all that's required of us is to trust that God will do what he says. And he has even given us that gift of faith. And so now God views us because we have placed our faith in him as if we had never sinned, as if we were covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so this is why we can have peace. This is why we can have hope because we are now made righteous. That's what Paul is saying. He said, because we have been justified, all of this is now true. And so the blessings we're going to discuss are true because of what Christ did for us. And I really hope that all of you here have experienced that justification. And if you have not, if you have not placed your faith in Christ and not repented, I would urge you to do so this morning. It's a fearful thing to fall under his wrath, but it's a joyful thing to be his child. And God is going to hold each of us accountable one day for what we do with his offer of salvation. And so if you haven't, please, 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 I beg you, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ so that you can experience this forgiveness, so that you can become his child. And for those of us who are God's children right now, I'm inviting you to dive deep into God's word and the implication of this theology so that you can experience it, so you can let it feed your soul. Um, I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching this passage, he said, we're not just here to preach it as a matter of doctrine. I want to preach it tonight as a matter of experience, as a thing realized, felt, enjoyed, and understood in the soul. So, 
what we read here is because we have been justified in Christ, we have peace with God. So peace speaks to an absence of conflict, of being in a harmonious relationship with someone. But this, again, remember, contrasts to the wrath of God we were once under. God's full anger had been directed at us, and now that hostility has ceased. And even, I just want you to reflect one more moment about that wrath that we were once under, for it helps us appreciate just how great this gift of peace is. And to do that, I want to just quote a couple words from Jonathan Edwards from the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of the Angry God. Um, Jonathan Edwards says, So that thus it is that natural man is held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as those who are actually suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insects over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear, to bear, to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. You know, we hear that and it's almost shocking because we just don't understand the, the offense that our sin is to God. And often it's just not popular to talk about that. But the reality is, is this is what the Bible says our position is before God outside of the righteousness of Christ. But, and think about that with this in contrast, who is it the one that created the way for our peace to God? It's that same God who was offended. And what did he have to do to make that way possible? He gave his most precious possession. He gave Jesus Christ his only beloved son. And that should astound our minds that one so offended would pay such a high price so that we, the offenders, could receive his grace. That's amazing. And so now we experience the blessing of being in a covenant relationship with God because just as our sins were relational, so now our justification and reconciliation with God is also relational. And it paves the way for us to have an intimate relationship with that same God who once bore his wrath against us. So Paul talks about peace. He's talking about an objective peace. And by that I mean, it's not just that in my heart I feel at peace with God. It's no, I am actually at peace with God. And our confidence of our good standing of God doesn't depend on how I feel day to day, but it is true every single day. We know that nothing can destroy our peace with God there is no way for God to continue his wrath against us because now he views us through the righteousness of his son. This is what Roman 8, 1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, because we know our peace is certain, it certainly gives us a subjective peace. We can experience that in our heart. And it's so, such a blessing because we know it's true and that means it can fight against anxiety, it can fight against self-condemnation. 
because we know we are right with God and we preach that to ourselves in the face of doubt. When we encounter the storms of life, we tell ourselves, man can do nothing against me, circumstances can do nothing against me, God is for me and nothing can touch me outside of his good pleasure. And so it means we no longer have confidence conflict with God, but it means we have entered into this joyous relationship. And Paul highlights this by saying, through whom we now have access. Access speaks of the opportunity to enter into the presence of God. Think about in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle or the temple, and the people couldn't approach God and his glory because of what? Because of their sin. And even the priest who could go before God could only go into the most holy place one time per year. And yet it's Christ who made a way for us to God. He made peace for us. He's given us access. That's the glory of what he accomplished. Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews 9 and 10, it says, Christ is our priest. He entered into the holy places to secure redemption by the sacrifice of himself. He once for all put away our sin. And then in 1019, it says, we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ. He was our sacrifice, so our sin could no longer be considered against us. He gave us his righteousness, so God could look at us as holy. And now he's that priest who brings us into this intimate relationship with God. Our peace now means our God, who we were once against, is now our friend. And that just speaks to what a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ. So again, consider the disposition of God's to us. He says we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. God's favor is directed towards us for eternity because of what Christ has done for us. This is not something we have earned. It is a grace. It is freely given. And we will ever exist in the gracious favor of God that he is just pouring out onto our lives in blessing. Our enemy is now our benefactor, and more than that, he is our father and our friend. And so God calls us to rest in that. He tells us, again, there's nothing we can do more to obtain this. Christ has done everything, and he calls us just to rest in that. We honor him by experiencing it, by enjoying that peace, by living in gratitude of it. And yet I would propose that sometimes we forget this. Um, Maybe you've heard the story of the orphan who came out of a situation of great need. He goes into a new family, um, yet his, his new parents find him hoarding food, and they ask why, and they realize it's because he just hasn't even grasped this fact that his parents will always provide for him. We're sometimes like that with God. We don't grasp the peace and the joy and the love with which he looks at us. And so somehow we think that he is privately displeased. We think that he's watching us with a critical eye. He's ready to berate us for our faults. And that's a lie. That's not the gospel. That's not grace. And Satan wants us to continue our lives doubting just how great God's favor is to us. And so part of our journey in faith as Christians involves learning to accept his unconditional favor and grace towards us who believed in him, that it's real, that that peace can never be destroyed. Now, of course, this does not mean God does not God tolerates the sin in our life. Of course, we can displease him when we sin against him. But that's not his fundamental disposition towards us as his children. He views us as his children. He's a father who loves us. And so even when he corrects our sin, 
He does it out of love. He does it out of grace because he wants the best for us. So I would challenge you, don't dishonor God by thinking small thoughts of his love towards you. Don't live as if you have to appease him, but rest in the peace that you have with him. And that's a great truth, but there's more in this passage. So we move to our second point, rejoice in certain hope. Um, Our justification brings peace. That's something we enjoy in the present right now. But there's something for the future, a hope that we have in our salvation. And that is something we look forward to now. And it brings us joy and it brings us confidence. And so we're called to rejoice in hope. Now the word for rejoice here is actually an interesting word. Because it means more than just be happy. It's actually a word that means to boast or exult. The idea is you have a joy and confidence that overflows in expressing that to others. So it's the idea you know how you enjoy something more when you tell others about it. So let me give you an example of exulting, okay? This is how we speak about sports teams. Exulting is what Washington Redskins fans do during the preseason. (laughs) I've heard it. It's like, we look great. We're playing well. Did you see that game last night? We're going to win the title this year. And I can joke about that because I'm a Cowboys fan and we have had nothing to exult about in the past 20 years. <laughs> but that's the idea of exulting. Like it's the, it's the joy, the confidence, and we just tell everybody about it, whether they want to hear about it or not. Um, but hey, if we can express such joy and confidence in something that is so temporary, why are we hesitant to confidently boast and take joy in something that is certain, the joy and hope we have in Jesus Christ. So what is hope? Hope is an attitude that looks to the future with a sense of expectation that something we desire will come to pass. And in the Bible, it's related to faith because it confidently trusts that what God has promised, he will do. And so it's that confidence that distinguishes it from the worldly idea of hope, which says, I hope I'm going to get a good grade on this test. I hope I'm going to become rich. I hope That girl will go out with me, but there's no certainty in that. But in the Bible, we wait for our hope patiently because we know it's certain. We know God will do what he says. And our hope is linked very specifically to our salvation, that what God has started in removing sin in our life and bringing us into a right relationship with him, that he will complete that in eternity. And so in this passage, we're going to see there are three ways we rejoice in hope. First, we rejoice in our hope of eternity with God. Um, We see that at the second part of verse 2. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this phrase, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, let's unpack this a little bit because it's a little confusing when you first read it. You have to remember God's glory is his value, his worth, um, his magnificence, the reality of who he is that makes him great, that makes him greater than anyone else. When you read in the Old Testament about the glory of God, it's very much linked with his displayed presence with his people. So, as far as his presence goes, you think of his glory that came to be at the tabernacle in Exodus. That was showing that his presence is with his chosen people. You see this again at the dedication of the temple. God's presence is there. It's actually interesting because you see the opposite in Ezekiel where the people have so violated the covenant that God actually takes his glory away from his temple and removes it, pointing to how they have broken that relationship because of their unrepentance. 
And the idea of presence is also associated with this idea that we cannot approach God in his glory because we are marred by sin. So thus, when Moses asks to see God's glory and goodness, God just shows him the backside of it because he can't see God's faith and love. And the priests can't enter the tabernacle when the glorious presence of God is there visibly. They can't go in. However, you have Isaiah who he sees the glory of God and he falls down in fear because he sees the sin in his life. And so the idea here is that we can't rest in God's presence because we are sinful and he is holy. And so we see that idea in Romans 3.23 where it says, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of his standard. Um, But as we said, we know sin is relational. So just like Adam and Eve were cut off from God's presence because of their sin, so we too are cut off from the presence of God. But the great thing for us is that has changed because now through Christ, we have access, as we just talked about, we have access to God. And so we are starting to experience that blessing right now. But one day we will physically be with God. We will be in his full and intimate presence with all of his glory unhindered, and we will have unhindered fellowship with him. We will see his beauty. We will rejoice in the grace that he has shown us. And so this is what Paul talks about later in Titus 2 verse 13. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, or what Jesus prays to God in John 17, 24, where he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me. So rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God involves rejoicing in this full, unhindered relationship with God that we will one day experience. So it involves that, but it involves one other thing too. We know that one day when we behold the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed into his image to such an extent that we actually share in his glory. And so this is what is talked about in 1 John 3, 2, where it says, Beloved, we are, not, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so that will change us and fully save us get rid of all this sin, make us perfect, and we will be like him, and that will be glorious. And so even now, as we see God's glory and as we look forward and hope in that, we are being transformed right now, day by day. And so that's that hope that Paul talks about later in Romans 8, which we read. One day our hope is that we will be glorified with Christ when he returns, he redeems our body, and makes us fully in his image. So think for a moment how that future hope helps us now in the midst of the discouragements and despair that we face in life. What is God telling us? He's telling us that our joy and our hope can never be found in our circumstances. And if we are looking for that in our circumstances, we will always be disappointed. But he has promised something greater. He has promised something that is sure. We can have confidence that one day we will be in his presence. We will be completely transformed. We will forever enjoy our relationship with him. And everything in our lives right now is bringing us forward to that moment. And we look forward to it with hope. And we must meditate on that hope. Because the opposite of that is to do what the world does. Look at what the world offers and place our hope in those temporal things. And we know that that will lead to disappointment and that will lead to despair. And so we're called to set our minds 
on our eternity with Christ. And that will bring joy, and that will bring obedience, and that will bring new priorities in our life today. And it's a hope that enables us to walk through life's difficulties, even life's sufferings. So that brings us to the second way we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in sufferings that produce hope. Um, Verse 3 to 4, it says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, at first glance, the idea of exulting, of confidently boasting in our suffering seems absolutely crazy because we know life is difficult and we face inexpressible pain. And the word for suffering here, it's the idea of being pressed down and it doesn't just include persecution, but it includes anything in life that's difficult. And I know that many of you are facing trials. Uh, Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, a broken relationship with a family or spouse, rejection by friends, financial difficulties, physical illness and pain, loneliness, watching a loved one suffer, feelings of despair and overwhelming anxiety that accompany with life's trials. And sometimes we act as if real Christians should never be overwhelmed by life trials, that we just need to stoically bear it and not feel the pain. But that's not true. You know, if you read the Psalms, you will find countless godly men who are coming before God, crying out, saying, what's going on? There's even a hint of doubt in the sense of they're saying, what are you doing, God? Are you even here? What is happening? Do you hear me? And it's encouraging because God doesn't want us to pretend. He wants us to come to him and speak plainly and speak what we're suffering. And that's actually a way we show faith that honors him by going to him in the midst of our difficulties. But that still brings us to the question, what would ever possess us to boast in the midst of our sufferings? And the answer lies in what sufferings produce. It's that sufferings produce hope. So God is the one who works on our sufferings to produce hope. He's like the farmer who cultivates his crop. He works day after day, lovingly, painstakingly working to cultivate that hope. When you read this construction here, it almost seems a little impersonal at first glance because it goes, okay, it's like the situation of suffering produces endurance and character and hope. But we as believers know that God is always at work. And we know that these things can only come about in our lives if God is at work. And so it's really a description of what God is doing. To understand even our experience of suffering, we need to go back and reflect on what it means to have peace with God. Um, We know that in general, suffering in life comes as a result of the curse, is God's response to sin, his wrath expressed towards humanity. So that's how sickness and death and all this suffering came into the world. But what about us who are God's children? Because if we were under his wrath, we could assume that maybe his suffering, these sufferings were an expression of his wrath towards us, but we just learned what? That we're no longer under God's wrath. That God views us through the righteousness of Christ, and he is incapable of placing us under wrath. So what we realize is that if our sufferings can't come about as a result of his wrath, then they must come from his love. And so just as he has redeemed us, he is redeeming every bad thing that we are going through, and it, he is redeeming it so that they work for our good. And that really is the idea behind Romans 8, um, Verses 28 through 30, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Keep that in mind, because that's what we're going to talk about, character that God produces. 
Um, in order that he might be the firstborn among any brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is why we can have hope in the midst of his suffering. So how does God use afflictions to produce hope? Well, first it says here, our suffering, our affliction produces endurance. Endurance is the power to stand up in the midst of difficulty, to patiently persevere when you're faced with trials. And it speaks of a faith that does not run from hardship, but bears up patiently in the midst of it. And I think it's worth noting Paul's statement that says, we know that suffering produces endurance because our natural response is to run from affliction because we say, I can't handle that. While Paul said, no, the way to endurance is actually to go through the trial, to go through the suffering. And what this means is God must work in our lives. He must use the difficulties to produce the inward quality that patiently endures in the face of suffering because we can't do it in our own strength. But it's God who has promised to produce that quality in us. And that's a freeing concept because we can lay aside that fear that we can't bear up because we become certain that God is at work. And so the result is we don't give in to despair. We can wait patiently. We continue in obedience. And we do this because we have developed confidence in God that enables us to go through that trial. And so then we see that our endurance produces character. And character is a word that indicates one who has stood up in under a trial, can be the word that they would use for like the fire that would test metals to see if they were pure. That's the idea. Paul uses it in Philippians 2.22 to talk of Timothy. He says, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And so it's a mark of honor, for it speaks of someone who is known to be true to God because of the proven pattern of their life in the face of suffering. And character is more than just doing the right thing, but it involves godly affections. And that's part of the reason trials are important, because they produce character. They burn away the dross and our attachment to this world, so we are focused on Jesus Christ. And again, just as we can't develop endurance without going through the suffering, we can't develop character without going through that trial too. But by God's help, we endure and he produces character, and this provenness in the fires of suffering shows that we are God's children. And anyone who has faced trials will have an awareness of their weaknesses. And so they know that the only way that character could be produced is if God was at work in them. And so the character that we then see as a result is a testimony to God being present and working in love in our life. And that allows us to face the next thing that comes on. And finally, we see that character produces hope. And how does it produce hope? Well, first of all, we see, as we have said, what God has done in the midst of suffering. His faithfulness helped us endure. His faithfulness produces character. And that means that he is present, that we are not alone. And it means that he is trustworthy and that nothing can keep us from his good purposes. And that gives us hope. And secondly, that character that is produced, causes us to hope because we know that when God produces character, he produces Christ-likeness. Our lives are filled with faith in his character, with love for him. We value his blessings, and those are qualities that produce a hope-filled person. So we don't seek the world's blessings. We don't rely on ourselves, but we seek our Father and the blessings he has promised. And that's how character produces hope. You know, Satan wants us to believe that God has deserted us in the midst of our trials. But Paul says that the opposite is true. He said God is using every difficult circumstance 
to work in our lives to mold us into the glorious image of his son. And that's what moves us from despair to hope. And third and finally, we rejoice in a hope that we know is certain. And I love this because after all that's already been said, we've talked about the assurance that we have that we are declared righteous. We talk about the promise of peace with God, access to his grace, the sure anticipation of glorification and eternal life with the Father, the knowledge that our sufferings are at work with God. Even still, Paul offers us another reason for why that hope is certain, why we will never be put to shame. So he says that in verse five, he says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Shame is the opposite of exaltation. It's where we slink back from others in dishonor because our confident expression of hope has been disappointed. So again, it's that you boast in your sports team and they get crushed. And now you got to go to work the next day and face everyone you talked about your team with on Friday. Um, It's the idea of failing to meet that expectation of your parents or your spouse. It's when, you know, at the job, you were supposed to do something, you were supposed to do something for your company, and and you just failed. But brothers and sisters, we have no fear that we will be put to shame when it comes to our joyful confidence in Christ. And why is that? It's because our hope depends not on our own goodness, but it depends upon the love of God. God's gracious affection has been poured out upon us. And to pour out really just means that God expresses his love without restraint. We have been given an overflowing abundance of God's love. So just take a moment with me and consider and enjoy some of what, some quotes that I found talking about this love. John MacArthur says, God's love for us has been lavishly poured out to the point of overflowing within our hearts. Lang says, the love of God did not descend upon us as dew and drops, but is a stream which spreads itself through the whole soul, filling it with the consciousness of his presence and favor. Hendrickson says, God's love is not rationed out drop by drop. On the contrary, by the Holy Spirit, it is poured out into our hearts. In other words, it is freely supplied, abundantly, copiously, lavishly. And even just take a moment to think not just what other people have said about this, but what God says about it in his own word. In Romans 5.8, just a few verses later, it says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Christ died for his enemies, and that shows the love of God. Or then in Romans 8.32, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What God's saying is, I gave my son for you. So I'm going to carry this through to the end. I love you. I will give you everything you need because I gave you the greatest gift already. And so I will give you everything else that comes along with it. And so that's why it goes, Paul then goes on to say at the end of Romans 8, he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then to add to all this, God gives us this love by his Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons God gives us his Holy Spirit is to make sure that we would not doubt his love. Let me explain how this guarantees God's love. First of all, we know the Holy Spirit comes into our life. He gives us new life. 
He changes us. He makes us a new creation. He applies Christ's righteousness to us and washes us of all our sin. So that's one way he gives us his love. But then we also know that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit to the, for the day of redemption. So in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that means God owns us, and that it makes us secure until we reach eternity one day with him in heaven. And then God expresses his love by letting his Holy Spirit indwell us. And what I love about this is think about it. Because God is permanently dwelling within us through his spirit, it means he can't condemn us because to do so means he would be condemning himself. And he puts that Holy Spirit in us, who gives us insurance. And then that Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts about all these truths so that we can rest securely in God's hands. It would be absurd for us to think that God would not accomplish this hope that we have. Because to not accomplish that hope would mean that he sacrificed his son for nothing, that his beloved son would not obtain his bride, and that God would then condemn his own spirit. And the reality is that God has so bound himself to us as his children that he can do nothing but bring us to be in, with him in eternity. And that's eternal security. So what do we do with those truths? And honestly, the response is pretty simple. First of all, we need to love and worship God. Think of how a child honors their parents. It's not by trying to make up all the things that they parents have done for them. It's by loving them. It's by being thankful. It's by being taking joy in them. We love God by just showing him that, by worshiping him. That brings him honor. Another thing we need to do is just walk in righteousness and love. You know, that's what Romans 6 is about. It says, we've been given grace. Don't use grace as an excuse to sin, but use it as a motivation to go walk in love and obedience to God. And finally, we can rest in this assurance in the midst of suffering. I don't know what you're going through. I know many of you have experienced trials that are worse than mine, but I can testify both from God's word and from personal experience that God will bring us through and he will use those experiences to help us grow, to love him more, to be more like Christ, to find hope and joy in him. So I encourage you, don't give up hope. I shared at the beginning about kind of the trial God put me through while we were in Togo. What I want to share just briefly is what he did in the midst of that. Because in the midst of those trials and the despair and the discouragement, God did some amazing things. He forced me to rest on him more than I ever had before. He helped me read the Bible in new ways, to read all those psalms of lament that you're like, why are they there? They're complaining against God, and they became a source of precious peace as I could read those and see, wow, this is the God I go before. And God used all of it to help me understand his love and his forgiveness in a way that was so deep, to the point where I can say, well, I hope I do not have to go through that again. I am thankful that God brought me through it. And that's really what it means when we say that God uses suffering and trials to build character and to build hope. That's what it means when he takes us through and we are at the end of it and we see all that he has done and what he has done in our own hearts. What's also neat to see is what God did there in Togo at that point at which I felt the lowest, at that point where it was hard to minister because I lacked energy and I lacked motivation. But in that last five months, 
the hardest five months of my life. Um, we're working among an unreached people group there that we are desiring to come to the Lord. And there were several new believers. It was really when our church plant took off. We saw a baptism, and there had never been a baptism among that people group there in Togo. And God did all of that in the midst of weakness. And really, when I look back and go, why did we go to Togo? That was the desire. That was what I was hoping for. And yet, in the midst of my weakness, God let me be a part of that. And he used a vessel of clay to help accomplish his purposes. And so even our weaknesses, we know that God is at work and his kingdom goes forward. So may you guys rest in that God. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we thank you for the confidence that we can come before you, resting in you and your goodness and your love for us. And so I'm just gonna just pray your words from Ephesians 3, where it says, I pray for us that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with your power through your spirit in our inner being so that your son may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded, that us being rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know that love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all in the fullness of God. Lord, help us in the midst of all we experience, just to know and believe that love. And now to you who is able to do it far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to your power at work within us, to you be the glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.